Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DH203, Regulations, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 315, June the 1st, 1994. This evening, Otto Scott, John Upton, and I shall be discussing a couple of subjects in this hour, regulations. Perhaps the overall title for both hours would be Surviving in Evil Times. Now, of course, Times have been evil in much of history. We often look back to the past as a placid time because we were not there and we did had no awareness of the complications and troubles of past eras. But surviving in evil times is something we must learn to do because we are in evil times. And not as evil as some people have experienced. One of the things that over the years has humbled me and made me think more than a little about my own shortcomings is the fact that my ancestors in the old country in Armenia were constantly in the presence of death. And yet their zest for life and their enjoyment of it was staggering. It was because they lived their faith. And our times are difficult for us when our faith is weak. We see the enormity of the problems and not the greatness of God. And that too often is our stance. One of the things that makes this an evil time, and this is our subject in this first hour, is the fact of regulations. Regulations are fiats of the state whereby we are bound by rules we had no hand in making, rules which are very often radically arbitrary, and they govern us. They are things we had no part in making. To give an example of uh, regulation in the sphere of in the environment, a retired military officer bought a home and after he was moved in and settled, he noticed that 25 feet from his door at the side 
of his lot. There was a spot where a lot of dead leaves and trash had accumulated and water stood two or three inches deep because it was a slight depression. He proceeded to clean it out as far as the trash was concerned. Also, he found that there were some snakes in it, which with a view to his grandchildren, he was happy to eliminate. He was arrested for disturbing wetland and faces prison. Now that's a regulation. It's a regulation of the kind that uh, we see vast numbers of every day being issued. Regulations we are often ignorant of and yet readily in violation of. So the world of regulations is a world of arbitrary rules whereby we are controlled. There are enough regulations to eliminate all of us, to wipe us out, to tie us up legally for years to come. And I'm constantly hearing from people who, because of some regulation they had never heard of, are in court and in deep deep trouble. Well, this is the world we live in. This is the world we must change. So, it's very important for us to be fully aware of a major problem here and to have an intelligent attitude towards it. Otto, would you like to comment on this? Well, yes. The regulations, you know, began as a help, as a, uh, a means by which people could work together, organize efforts, regulate them. It was a great advance in human history when men began to work according to rule instead of as the spirit moves. They were able to do a great many things more efficiently. I don't really know of any society that has escaped the trap of organization because it works so well when you organize efforts that there is a tendency to keep organizing and to organize them more and more minutely so that eventually the organization overtakes the goal and the whole business of having an organization and running the organization becomes more important than the purpose of the organization. This is what's happened to us. This is what's happened to our government. Our government has gone berserk on organizing. Uh, Mr. Bush was the one, Mr. Nixon was the one who gave us the first environmental law. Mr. Bush then 
gave us the second, which is the monster. There is no way this government has now regulated everything that moves, everything that is alive, and everything that is organic and inorganic. Insects, reptiles, fish, fowl, and mammals are all governed now by the regulations of the environmentalists. It's really amazing. It's a form of lunacy. Mm-hmm. It's a form of idiocy. And you can hear the lunacy when you listen to one of these environmental meetings, or one of these environmentalists lecturing or talking. I remember that I was doing the Raytheon history which must have been 15 or so years ago, maybe longer. One of their divisions was the Badger Engineering Company, which had the contract to do a nuclear plant in Maryland. It was a very large contract and a very large plant, probably 20 years ago or 25, I've forgotten now which, when nuclear plants were still being constructed. And the man in charge of all this took me into a room, rather large room, and it had bookshelves, all four sides, and every shelf was covered, was filled, and these were the plans of the plant, the engineering plans of the plant. And I've forgotten how many millions of dollars are involved, quite a good number, he said, now, these are the plans, and he said, we have we finished the plant. We, we had constructed the plant. He told me where it was. It had, hadn't been opened yet. And then he said, according to law, we had to have one last public hearing. And he said it was flooded with environmentalists. And we had answered every question in all the hearings before, and we had filled this gap and that wrinkle and so forth. And he said, we thought this, we, this time we had it. And somebody got up and said, what would happen if an airplane fell on the roof? And he said, well, it's not in the plane pattern. He said, well, suppose an airplane got out of the plane pattern and fell on the roof. Have you strengthened the roof against that sort of an accident? And he said, no. No, we haven't. Well... That meant another X millions of dollars. They had to go back and strengthen the roof. And as far as I know, the plant was never opened. Was never opened. Never put to work. All the houses that it could have heated or lit, all the factories that it could have animated and so forth, never got the benefit. And the money, of course, was wasted. The utilities had to raise their rates because the utilities, I'm sure, in Maryland, it's like California, they now have brownouts and blackouts because we don't have enough utilities to take care of our electrification and power needs. So that's that's where regulations of nuclear industry have taken us. So... <clears throat> If I could summarize, I would say that what we have here is a government out of control. We have people 
who are out of control in the sense that they don't realize that there are limits to what is possible in terms of man's power on earth. We're back to the Renaissance idea that man can govern the forces of nature. And we think we have the technology which enables us to do it. Being um, uh, younger than, than both of you gentlemen, you were both my age when I was born, so I was born into the regulatory age. I don't know anything different. I'd like to know what it was like before, before people's... I look at regulation as, as people lose faith in God, they regulate more. Uh, what was it like in your lives when people had more faith in God and hence less regulations? Otto pointed out that regulations are not new. I'm glad you raised that question because it is a point that must be made. There was a time when uh, most regulations began with a statement such as a gentleman does not do this or that or a gentleman does thus and so or a Christian gentleman or a Christian lady doesn't do or does do certain things. This meant that everybody was expected to be a self-regulating functioning member of society. On top of that, society itself felt that there were certain standards that had to be maintained. We no longer talk about social standards and the obligation of people uh, in society to do certain things and to uh, prevent other things from occurring. But it was not unusual for adults to take a hand in uh, situations because they felt they had a social responsibility to set people straight, to correct them if they needed correction. They felt it was a moral responsibility. Now, I'm ready to grant that this can be overdone. And I don't think it was overdone in this country, but in England, for example, I've been told by an English woman that it was routine for her mother, as a prominent woman in the community, to visit uh, the less fortunate people of the parish and to tell the woman when she called on her uh, that uh, she had things all wrong in the furnishing of the home and that she had... Uh, the wrong uh, tastes in dressing 
and also to make suggestions about proper diet because she would know a great deal more than, say, this uh, working man's wife would or this farmer's wife would. Now, this English woman told me that she was often embarrassed by the way her mother told these people, but the people took it. And it had its uh, rather officious side, but it also was a, an important part of the Victorian era in that it was functioning to bring people up to a, a level socially so that we have had these uh, societal and self-regulations or regulating factors in our world at large. Uh, to illustrate, as a boy, I grew up partly on the farm and partly in a major city when my father was a pastor in a particular city. At that time, whether in the country or the city, you didn't get away with anything because if you were uh, doing things you shouldn't be or showing a disregard for someone's lawn or backyard and we'd play up and down the street in and out of all the yards but if we were out of line our mothers would be called by some woman and we would be reprimanded when we got home everybody felt it was their duty and they did their duty they kept the kids in line Jane Jacobs commented on the loss of this factor when urban uh, redevelopment broke up some of the old established urban communities. And she pointed out that there was a very low crime rate in those areas because everybody made everybody else's business their own. So there was a great deal of policing by people. They're trying to get back some of that with the neighborhood watch idea, but it's uh, not the same. So a great deal of law enforcement used to be in the hands of the community, not in the hands of the police. And it made a different kind of society. But that doesn't exist anymore, or to a very limited degree. Well, the United States, my experience in life, has always been much more locked up country than it admits. I mean, when I was a boy, or when we were boys, we had prohibition. And that was quite a thing. The Americans weren't, had, didn't have the right to buy liquor or to drink liquor. And this led to all kinds of abuse 
on the part of the government. They break down doors, drag people off, put men in the penitentiary for having a bottle of whiskey. And it was it's astonished the rest of the world because the United States talks so much about liberty and freedom, and they locked uh, they locked the country up. It was a real nightmare. And there were, of course, people who didn't drink, and it didn't bother them. But there were an awful lot of people who used to drink in a civilized fashion. Under prohibition, drunkenness was no longer considered a social disgrace, which was a big shift in the manners of the United States. People took pleasure in getting drunk, and there was more alcohol, more misbehavior in drinking during Prohibition than before, or for that matter, since. And it lingered for quite a while after repeal. When I first started to cover conventions, they were drunken brawls, believe me. Now you don't see anybody drinking at a convention at all, wine at dinner or something like that. Men bring their wives to business conventions, but in the in the 30s and 40s, and I gather that the 20s were worse. I wasn't mature in the 20s, so I couldn't say. But I had an uncle that made home brew in the cellar, and everybody that I saw as an adult when I was growing up had a flask or offered liquor. Was it? To their guests and so forth and so on. Was he uncle on the on the Irish side of the family? Yes. Okay. Yes. And but it was true of the Germans also. Mm -hmm. It was true of most of the Americans. This was a hard drinking country before prohibition, and an awful lot of uh, trouble came with it. The gang wars came. The black market came. The black market came in with with prohibition mm -hmm. because. The money flowed through the police and through, flowed through the banks. It corrupted the country. I mean, we had gangsters. Well, for instance, Mr. Dillinger got out of prison, broke out of jail with a pistol. They said later that he had carved the pistol out of soap. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. Pretty boy Floyd and his friends broke out. Within days, they had automobiles and submachine guns, and they didn't get them from the corner grocery. Mm -hmm. They got them from the police. And that was one of the aspects of prohibition. So you talk about regulation. Here you're talking about the dark side of regulation or regulations that are enacted without any attention to human nature. to custom, to culture, to tradition. And it began, in my opinion, with the abolitionist movement. And it flowed from there. At the time of abolition, you had feminism, you had prohibition, you had all kinds of uh, let's make the other guy good movements, which is one of the great pitfalls of the North American culture. So, so would you say that we moved away from the uh, thou shalt nots to the thou shalts? Absolutely. Because the thing about 
you wrote about Carry Nation, it fascinated me in that what I never thought of is that what did Carrie Nation or people like her do to change the face of the future Well, they without intending it? They made a lot of things worse because now we're talking about a war against drugs. Now this is a regulation. This is a regulation. It's gotten so far that the physicians are afraid to give pain-killing drugs to their patients because they're, the doctors are monitored by the drug agencies. And if a doctor happens to have too many patients in pain and puts out too many painkillers, a red flag goes up. The local pharmacist's records are monitored. And the physician that gives up too much painkillers is investigated. He might lose his license. They, uh, the definition of narcotics has been expanded as far as possible to include even chemicals which do not create euphoria but only kill pain, like the products of Burroughs Welcome. Emperin, they used to call them. I think they call it codeine now. So when we get into regulations, this is an attitude. Anne and I moved into San Diego and we got what I guess is called a townhouse in a group of these townhouses. They were all connected. They were good looking and the grounds were all kept and there was a swimming pool and uh, it was a good place to spend our first year while we looked around. And we had a little dog, a little West Highland Terrier, white Scotty you might say. And I would take the dog on a walk through the place around the place every evening and it would go past one woman's townhouse where she had two or three little dogs who would go crazy behind their fence when my dog went by and she came out and wanted me not to walk past her place again and I said you know the whole place thinks that you're a lunatic and should be institutionalized and she was astonished to hear this <laughs> But at any rate, it was the first thing that came into my mind, that I was dealing with a nut who didn't want me to walk past her house. But the longer we lived there, the more I became aware of the number of rules that the residents had organized and enacted. They had as many rules as the American Congress for the residents of this little area. And I think this is an American disease to regulate. Do you know that Mr. Nixon, after he left office, couldn't move into a cooperative apartment building in New York City because the tenants voted against him? He couldn't buy an apartment? So we can put this on a national scale, which is one thing. We put it on a personal scale that's something else. Everywhere you go now, there are regulations. The restaurants, can you smoke, can you not smoke? The highway, in Germany, there's no speed limit. There never used to be a speed limit in Britain. I think they have one now, but I'm not sure. But yes, Germ Germany has mm -hmm. no speed limit. The Germans 
don't believe that once you're adult, you should be regulated to that extent. But they regulate when you can water your window box, That's when you can so hang they're, up. They're, not, the they're not consistent. Yes. But we are still on 55 miles an hour, long after the oil, gasoline, emergency is passed, and I have a car that can go 120 miles an hour. What good is it? I cannot see you, though, driving at a 120 auto. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> I haven't found I haven't found a place that's safe to do it, but I'll, I'll do it as soon as I can. <laughs> well, no, regulations are an American disease. I think England and France and Germany, everybody is in a race. They'll outregulate everybody else, I'm afraid. But we are not the free country oh, that no. our rhetoric, our children are taught. We're not the free country we were in the 30s. That's true. When we had a great deal of freedom, and except for the very wealthy, no income tax. We had... We did have freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Now that was a very big freedom. And I agree with Tacitus that the loss of freedom of speech means the loss of everything. Mm-hmm. We do not have that today. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to talk about when we turn the tape is how the United Nations is trying to regulate the world. Yes. And how the world is responding to it by putting bodies into rivers and and uh, it's, it's just incredible. Well, Rwanda has not been criticized, believe it or not, because there really is an indifference in the United States and in the UN to blacks killing each other if there were some whites that they could blame, it would be different. No, Otto, if they killed one gorilla, because <laughs> that's where they film gorillas in the mist, if one of those gorillas got killed, we would we would all be over there fighting to save the gorillas. But, you know, 200,000 poor black folks can get killed, and we think it's a shame. Wouldn't you think that Burundi and Rwanda would redraw their nationality borders. Wouldn't you think they would reshape the borders so that one tribe could be in one country and the other tribe in another country and that would be the end of it? Don't you think that black Africa really should have a mass meeting of their governments and redraw their lines, their, their, their countries along racial and ethnic lines so that these internecine wars would not be necessary. John, you mentioned regulations from the international, the UN level. An example of that is the fact that any kind of uh, private enterprise with regard to space or the moon or the sea is now abolished. The Treaty of the Sea, which we are almost the last to resist signing, Clinton 
apparently is planning now to sign. This means that any independent or private exploration of the minerals in the sea or any exploration by a particular nation will be illegal. Everything will be controlled by the UN. Now, this is regulation with a vengeance. Moreover, the very idea that this uh, can be done is threatening because you might be sufficiently socialist that you agree with the Treaty of the Sea. But what kind of uh, prejudice can a treaty embody if an international body approves of it? And the governing force behind prejudice today is equalitarianism. To illustrate, the newest thing, and it does not come from the deaf or the hard of hearing, I'm hard of hearing. The idea now is to uh, say that someone should have a hearing aid is discriminatory. You're acting as though your norm of hearing should be the norm for everyone and that somehow there's something lacking in him if you try to get him to use a hearing aid. Now, of course, that borders on insanity. However, we've had that for some time. Uh, some companies have had to take extremely obese people on as operators. And because of their ostensibly handicapped status, they have been free to break all the rules to stay home when they choose and to carry on in a flagrant way because the corporation is afraid of violating minority rights. Now, this is the kind of thing that regulation leads to. And, as I said, behind a great deal of these regulations is an equalitarianism. Why? What's wrong with saying that uh, a person who cannot hear needs something? I know I do, and one of these days I'll probably get a hearing aid again because the old one no longer works. I'm handicapped, so what? That very word, handicapped, is now banished. We're being regulated into a uniformity, into an equalitarianism in which to excel is to sin. Well, the law of the sea is an interesting example. I understand that there are, there are vast amounts of manganese at the bottom of the sea, bottom of the ocean. And manganese happens to be one of the minerals which is, whose supply is being jeopardized by the 
revolution mm -hmm. in South Africa. We need it very badly. Mm -hmm. If it comes under the UN, and we don't know what other minerals there are in the ocean bed, uh, very probably all of them, because they're, they exist in the surface of the earth, so that, and the only difference between the surface of the earth and the ocean bed is that the ocean, you know, there's water over part of the earth. If we don't have access to all those mineral treasures, I don't know what the future would do. The idea, however, that the UN can regulate human behavior and enforce it brings us back to the fallacy involved in regulations. You have to tailor the regulation to what is possible. If you over-regulate, then you're faced with something entirely different. You're faced with rebellion. You're faced with eventually a collapse of the system. The United States is moving into the area of regulation where it is so extensive and is causing so much trouble and is so expensive and is interfering with our economy and our life to such an extent that we either have to withdraw some of these regulations or change the government because we cannot continue under this sorcerer's apprentice system of regulation. They've forgotten how to turn it off. I understand that Representative Army is putting in a sunset uh, proposal, sunset law proposal, mm -hmm. regarding our agencies. He wants them to be re-evaluated mm -hmm. every two years to look at the results of their activities to see whether or not they're worth continuing. And that's, I'd say, a crack in the dike. I don't think it'll get anywhere with a Democratic Congress because if they had their way, they would put us in handcuffs and leg shackles all the time. I've never understood why they do this because once they get out of office, they're un under the same regulations as the rest of us. But I think it is a thought in the right direction that we have perhaps reached the limit one of the uh, the most murderous regulations of our age are the ideas of economic sanctions against yeah. the country, which ostensibly do not prevent food or medical aid or materials to get in, but they literally smother any any uh, effort in. And we uh, were trying to help the former Yugoslavia by delivering food to the country. And in preparation of doing some research, we sent over some uh, camera people, camera crews, to record what was happening on the Serbian side of Yugoslavia. And in one of the hospitals, the, uh, a little boy came in who was a hemophiliac who fell off of his bicycle and they couldn't stop him bleeding. And they, the, uh, they didn't have any factor A at the hospital. And they said, the doctor said, we can't help your son. The only thing you can do is go to Budapest in Hungary, which is about an eight-hour drive, and get the factor A and bring it back. Well, the only problem is, is that they didn't have any gasoline to put into the car. And they had to sell their 
house, so they didn't have a house to, to, to sell to get the gasoline. And it was such a mess that this kid just died. He died for because somebody in Washington or Bonn or or uh, somewhere else in London thought it was a good idea to impose top-down controls to bring Serbia into line. We're seeing the same thing in Haiti. And the only thing that the economic sanctions do is it, it creates millionaires out of thugs because the tough and the strong in the culture, they know how to make things happen. It's the people that are the, 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 the weaker people in the uh, culture who usually don't have a say anyway into, in, the, in a political system that, that suffer. And that, to me, is one of the most evil of the regulatory spirit of our age. Well, we, the Germans tried to do it to the English in World Wars I and Two. And the English and the Americans did it to the Germans in World War One. We're still doing it to Iraq. And that includes a boycott of medical supplies. Now, what, what did Iraq do wrong? I, I still haven't figured that out. Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait. With our permission. And, the, and with our encouragement. Mm -hmm. And the uh, argument was that it would next attack Saudi Arabia and take control of Mid Middle Eastern oil. That was the, the two arguments. Well, Iraqi oil is now off the market. So if we wanted cheaper oil, there's very little reason to keep Iraq from selling its oil. And why the boycott is still on, and why we're, we're still maintaining an aerial military surveillance over Iraq has never been explained, and nobody's ever asked the question. But why, why do you think that is? I have no idea. Uh, as a, as a, an old journalist, I don't come up with conclusions when I have no evidence and when I don't have all the information, the story, as far as I'm concerned, is incomplete. Uh, we don't get all the information we need to make a proper and intelligent assessment of what our government does. We know that there are reasons that have not been disclosed, but we don't know what they are. I remember a, a, a pivotal in incident in that whole Iraq affair was the falsification of some type of a uh, a child being tortured? Oh, they took this. The ambassador's daughter said that she saw infants taken out of oxygen tents and allowed to strangle to death with loss of oxygen, and it was a fabrication. And the media got whipped up, and and um, and, and and there we go. And I remember George Bush standing in front of the television talking about it was that is he was reading a bad script about the Saddam Hussein and and I forget the term that he called him but he he always called him Saddam Saddam Hussein <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny but it, it was just really pathetic and here we are uh, 10,000 or 15,000 of our people who are sick later uh, from something that w was in the air over there, or something that, some kind of chemicals. And somebody thought it was a good idea, it was a good, a good thing to do at the time. 
Well, we couldn't do it again because the military has been cut back to such an extent we could no longer mount that kind of an operation. And as it was, we had to rent vessels from the Soviets to transport our troops. We have no merchant marine anymore. We don't need it. We've only got two oceans, you know, one on each end of the country. So we don't need ships. Well, let's back up. Let's act like journalists. Who benefits when we decide to set up a phony well, Kuwait, phony premise. Kuwait benefited, and uh, Kuwait is a very wealthy, uh, small but extremely wealthy country. And what we're talking about here is a situation in which many billions of dollars exist. And generally speaking, when there are billions of dollars floating around, somebody gets some of them. But these are just speculations. I, I have no... We have not been given any hard information or justificate why, for instance, are we concerned about the Kurds? Uh, what does that mean to the average American, whether the Kurds have a piece of that country or not? What do we care? The major beneficiary in any kind of war or military action is the state. War and military actions give the state an opportunity to increase its powers. And that's what's happened with each successive little military engagement or large one. We have seen Washington's power grow and ours decrease. And now we're talking about North Korea, uh, Korea again. Well, we yeah. didn't declare war in Korea. Truman's mistake in the first place was to go into Korea under the UN instead of declaring war. Yes. We didn't declare war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And we didn't declare war in the Persian Gulf, the Gulf War. So we're now sending troops around the world without congressional permission mm -hmm. and without a vote and without the voice of the people. So you're quite right in this. The war-making power has been spread between Congress and the President so that we just don't declare war anymore. We don't do things by the rules. There are no rules. Well, if there are no rules on international levels, there's, there's many rules on a domestic level. And this is the disparity we're, we're caught in right now. But you, you started on the sanctions. Now, they applied sanctions against South Africa. And I remember when I got a call from a friend in Washington who said Reagan has declared sanctions in order to keep Congress from declaring worse sanctions. And I said, I'm not pleased. He said, I thought you would be. I said he wasn't elected to do that. He was elected to conduct decent foreign policy and not to attack our friends, our allies. Now, once he declared sanctions, he had to enact a regulation, and the regulation was that South Africa presented a clear and present danger to the United States of America, which meant that anyone who went to the South African embassy was followed by the FBI, and his name was put down as having dealings with the enemy, because we made South Africa an official enemy country. You have to do that before you can apply sanctions. I don't know what they're doing about Haiti. But that was the rule then. 
Now, if you wanted to make the condition of the blacks better in South Africa, you would have invested money in South Africa so that they could give them jobs and hospitals and so forth and so on. The sanctions created such a, a depression, they created a pre-revolutionary situation in South Africa. That's how the South African government was brought down by our sanctions and our leading a crusade against the white government of South Africa. Now, in all this interim months, you had an escalation of murders. It became the murder capital of the world. And each month, our press kept saying, they're getting closer to the end of apartheid, and isn't it wonderful? Well, it's all gone now, and the blacks are in charge. And we'll see how long it lasts. Mm -hmm. And there are no longer any honest statements about what happened to Africa and how... Uh, continent that half a century ago was highly productive is now a shambles and in need of aid. Oh yes, well the world is beginning to get bored. How long can you operate on the theory that the white race is on earth to take care of the black race? Mm -hmm. And it's to blame for the faults of all the peoples of the world. Everywhere. Yes. Well the thing that you have to to, to getting back to Russia's point about the regulations, in our culture, we are not going to be able to say that some men are inferior to other men, and that's a problem. I think yes. it's a, I think it's something that in your generation it was presupposed that until somebody became uh, a civilized, productive Christian that they were in some sense an inferior person and today my generation will never ever admit or even say that some people are are, are are inferior than others well you can't even say anymore that some people are stupid mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. when uh, but it's an obvious fact yeah in my years on the American Indian Reservation where I served as a missionary. The Indians would not hesitate to say the whites are better than we are. They beat the pants off of us. But they would, they were not uh, happy with the term Indian because they did not feel that the various tribes were related. So they had their own tribal name. Each had their own name, which yes. was, we are the people, that's right. all the name we have. But they are the Paiutes, right. or the uh, Comanches, or whatever. And they rated the various tribes as uh, worthless, or very good, or superior. They're better than we are, but we're better than those people are. It was a very realistic assessment of uh, the various Indian cultures and uh, their own culture as compared to the whites. Now, when you have that realistic assessment, you say that, well, we can improve. We've got to improve. But if everybody gets the same grade, let us say, in a classroom, who needs to improve? 
It used to be that students would compete for the better grade. They'd have spelling bees and other contests in order to establish a level of excellence. And that's gone. Well, when you issue a regulation, it's done on the assumption of equality. Mm -hmm. Because the regulation treats everybody equally. Mm -hmm. There's no exceptions. Well, if there's no exceptions, there's no exceptional people. But beyond that, if you're totally regulated, your personal authority has been taken away. You are under the authority of the government or some other group. And when you have no authority over yourself, you have no responsibility for your behavior. So a lack of personal authority leads to irresponsible behavior. Mm -hmm. It leads to irresponsible behavior on all levels. Plato and his Republic held that most people had to be ruled by the philosopher kings. Therefore, they had to be strictly regulated and controlled in every aspect of their life. They would have no personal freedom because they were incapable of it. This, however, meant that on the top level, the philosopher kings, there was no accountability to anyone. Well, who could... Who could hold the king accountable. Yes. That was the that was the query that the English solved when they took Charles I into custody. How do you charge the king? Because the king is the law. Well, they charge him with being an enemy of the people. And they executed him for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where the phrase first came from. So, public enemy is not exactly invented here. (laughs) (laughs) And then you also have the evangelical um, tendency to regulate people through church life and to create an artificial life that is sort of um, given by the pastor and by the elders and, and this is a, this life and yes. uh, it goes against uh, Calvin and and what Calvin stood for but I think that's interesting how we've swallowed regulation in the church and uh, once we can swallow it in the church we can swallow it everywhere else well a lot of these churches wouldn't have accept wouldn't accept Calvin if he were to come back mm-hmm. He wouldn't, he wouldn't come up to their level of austerity. But it's usually an austerity for each other. It's, uh, I'm not saying it properly. But it's a pretended austerity. Yes. Well, Calvin would be censured immediately by a great many supposedly Calvinistic churches. He preached every day at the cathedral and he did a great many other things so he was a very very active man and he looked forward to bowling on the green Sunday afternoons and he liked his wine yes that bowling on the green would have him up before most consistories so would the wine (laughs) 
Well, the regulations have become self-defeating. And this happened to the Catholic Church. The organization overtook its own purpose. So just to keep the church going became its purpose. This uh, happens to corporations today. I've seen corporations with policy books that are six inches thick. They try to govern every possible contingency. They want the salesman to memorize the sales talk. They don't take it for granted that he'll be able to dance with different customers. They want to tell him how to dance with each customer. Mm -hmm. The same dance. <laughs> this is like restricting you to a waltz. Well, the church is Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox. All of them are governed now not by the law of God, but by church regulations. And it is leading to a decline in the level of the life of the laity because they have been made subject to man-made rules and regulations which too often carry more weight than the Word of God. And the result is a loss of respect for the church. If a church stands for God's law, God's total word, people can disagree, but they can never evade the fact they have to respect God's law, willy-nilly. But now when the church stands for itself, it doesn't get much respect. Yet Calvinists are the ones that are being accused that once we gain power, and I've always, I've, I've always marveled at that one, once we've gained power, we're going to start to institute all of these laws. Well, you know that famous cartoon where the two men are spread eagled against the wall and one says to the other, this is my plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, our time is about up. Any last words? Well, what's the way out, Rush? What do we need to do to fix this? What regulations do we have to Regulations are the epitome of man's word. And we're being strangled by man's proud attempt to create a new paradise on earth by regulating everything. God's law takes only a limited number of pages and it gives man freedom. It is called by our Lord's brother, James, the perfect law of liberty. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.